If you guys have your Bibles, I want to invite you to open up Amos chapter 6. We're going to finish the second section of the book of Amos, if you remember. The book of Amos began with uh, what's called the, the Oracle of Nations or the Table of Nations, where the prophet would give out a word to all the nations, in this particular case, all the nations surrounding Israel, uh, if you picture it like a target, he's circling the nation of Israel until the very last oracle is given about Israel, that God's judgment is coming upon them. And then we started the second section, which is a series of sermons. Tonight we're going to look at the second half of the very last sermon uh, that Amos gave against Israel. Uh, dealing with the, the reasoning behind why the judgment is coming, why the Lord is pouring out his judgment upon them. And the bottom line is they were filled with arrogant complacency and self-indulgence. So oftentimes when I go through the prophets, especially the minor prophets where we find ourselves now, I see so many parallels between uh, the Israel at the time of the of the prophets and the, the United States. Now, it's, it's not a prophecy about the United States, but I can see us in there. I can see our attitudes. Arrogant complacency is not a stretch to describe the United States of America. Neither is self-indulgence a stretch. So we look at the nation of Israel. We have the, the final sermon Two weeks ago, last week we had a prayer uh, um, meeting on Wednesday night, which we'll be doing once a month, by the way, um, probably at random times so I can keep you guys on your toes. Um, we talked about the first woe. So there's two woes in the second sermon. The first woe was woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. And we talked about this. Scripturally, the Bible talks about the day of the Lord. And when it talks about the day of the Lord, it's talking about a day of judgment. Now, you and I, we're looking for and longing for the, the great appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're looking for that. But that comes with the day of the Lord. Ultimate salvation to the believer and final judgment to everyone else. So the, the challenge to... Um, the nation of Israel is you're desiring the day of the Lord and you don't even know that it's a day of judgment for you. Now, this is important for us to understand, and we'll talk about it a little more as we go in through chapter six. But part of the issue is the people in Israel didn't recognize their own state. And if you think about the book of Revelation, first three chapters of the book of Revelation, we have seven letters to seven churches, right? And one of the things every church had in common is they did not recognize their own state. There was not a time where Jesus says, you know what, you guys totally understand exactly what's going on. Most of the time, maybe they thought they were out of favor, maybe they thought they were in favor and they weren't. But there are challenges about uh, us, mankind, being able to rightly regard his own state before God, which is why the psalmist and the prophets would challenge the people to examine themselves, right, on a regular basis. Take a little time and consider where you are really, you know, probably in a quiet place where you don't have to put on some special airs for someone else, but just accurately 
thinking about, reflecting upon where we are, what we're doing. Is there something we need to be confessing? Which is ultimately the beauty of having the Lord's Supper. Because that's supposed to be part of that. A time of self-examination. The second woe is a woe to those who are complacent in Zion. So not only do the people long for the day of the Lord and don't recognize that it's a day of judgment, but uh, they're enjoying the luxuries of life and they have no urgency about a right relationship with God. And that's the second woe. That's where we find ourselves in chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion, to those who feel secure on the mountains of Samaria, the notable men of the first of the nations to whom the house of Israel comes. So he's looking to them and he says, now woe to you who are at ease in Zion. Now we're talking about the northern kingdom. That's the reference to Samaria. Um, later on, these people will become the Samaritans. We, at the time of Christ, after the Assyrians come and conquer, which is what this prophecy in the book of Amos ultimately is about, uh, what will be left behind will be a mixture of Jews and other Gentiles from other nations. They're going to write their own scripture. They're going to build their own temple, and they're going to start their own religion. So that's what will, is, is eventually going is the road that they're on. That's where these things are eventually going to take place. But he's saying, you guys are just taking it easy. You got the lazy boy out. You're checking on the game. You're, you're uh, just enjoying the good life. They were, they were at a time of economic prosperity. They weren't suffering. And the Lord says, you are just taking your ease. The notable men come to visit. The people look at you and think you're doing really good. Right? You see the parallels? He says in verse 2, So pass over to Colnay and, and see, and go from there to Hamath, the great, and from there to Gath of the Philistines. Now each one of these is a great city of a prior kingdom. So if you, if you, if you, whenever you look at the prophets, it's always good to keep Daniel in mind. So remember the dream of Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel? He has a dream about a statue that represents the kingdoms of men, right? Head of gold, chest of silver, uh, body of bronze, legs of iron, feet iron mixed with clay. You guys with me? And one of the things we see in this dream that is important for us to remember is that the kingdoms of men do not last. Gold goes to silver, goes to bronze, goes to iron, iron mixed with clay. Ultimately, Jesus Christ comes from the heavens and destroys the kingdoms of men. That's the dream in, in Daniel chapter 2, kind of in a nutshell. So when we think about that, here the prophet is saying to the people, look at all these great cities. Now these are not necessarily cities that are part of that statue, but that statue represents the failure of human kingdom to last and God's divine judgment continuing. So you, if you look at those four kingdoms in the dream of Daniel, that wasn't the end of the kingdoms of men, was it? No, there's been lots of kingdoms, but what do they all have in common? They rise and they fall. And so they're, they're, they don't last. There's only one kingdom that lasts. What's that kingdom? The kingdom, of, the kingdom of God, right? So we're looking for that kingdom. So he's telling them, look at these cities. Look, here's a... 
the first one is a, is a city, a great city from Assyria before Assyria became a power. And it was conquered. Then he says, look at, um, let me look at the next, next one. Look at Hamath the Great. And Hamath the Great is a great, was a great city of Syria that was conquered. And then he says, look at Gath. Gath was a great city of the Philistines, which was conquered. So he's saying, look at all of these places. And then he asks this question, are you better than these kingdoms? Now, sometimes our arrogance, particularly in, in, in our own realm, right? We can't imagine how it would be possible that the world could get along without the United States, right? Right? You get, you kind of get what he's saying. He's looking back and we, we, if, if we were to give a similar message from a prophet, he would say, look at Rome. Who are they? They're nobody now. Are you greater than them? And the point of it is, no. And those kingdoms fell. Those kingdoms failed. And so this is the message that the prophet is giving. Or is their territory greater than your ter territory? Were they bigger? Were they stronger? Yet they, they too have fallen. And ultimately, he's leading up to this concept. Your day is drawing near. Verse 3, O you who put far away the day of disaster and bring near the seat of violence. They're thinking that this is not coming for us. It won't come in our time. You know, we've, we've got this all worked out. And the Lord is saying, no, you, you keep thinking it's, it's a far off and it's not a far off. It's right here. The judgment is at the door. In Amos 5.18, it says, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. You remember when we talked about the day of the Lord, we talked about the concept that the Jewish day starts at night. Six in the evening is the beginning of the day. They're on a lunar calendar. It's different. We're on a solar calendar. So for them, the beginning of the day is the night before. And the concept scripturally is night is full of sorrow, but joy comes in the morning. And the same with the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is a day of darkness because it's a day of judgment, but then it's a day of salvation. Are you guys with me? So this is what he's describing. Listen to how Jesus talked about it. Jesus talks about this in Matthew 24. We will probably be in Matthew 24 in a couple weeks. I think I start, am I still in 20? I'm still in 20, huh? So, but we'll, don't worry, because we'll probably be in Matthew 24 for a year. So we'll see how that goes. <laughs> but Matthew 24, Matthew 24, beginning at verse 48, he, Jesus is telling a parable. He says, but if the wicked servant says to himself, my master has delayed his coming. And he begins to beat his fellow servants and he eats and drinks with the drunkards. The master of the servant will come at a day when he does not expect him in an hour that he does not know, and he will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You have a similar uh, phrasing from Jesus to speaking to the, the people there before him in Matthew 24. And he's saying, look, if you think that judgment's never going to come, 
You're, you are going to be surprised. From the time Jesus spoke these words, it's probably around 30 years before the destruction of Jerusalem, the, the destruction of the temple, the end of the nation of Israel, and the end of Judaism. Now, you could, there are people who practice Judaism today, but they are not really practicing Judaism. You know that, right? You can't have Yom Kippur. You can't have Judaism without sacrifice, and there's no temple there are no sacrifices from the time of Christ, just like the writer of Hebrews wrote, it has been impossible to practice Judaism. It has passed away. And now you have in its stead the truth of Jesus Christ. So this is this is. So here Jesus is saying, Matthew 24, hey, don't say it's never going to come because it will come. There will be a day of judgment. How many times have you heard somebody say something like this? If the Lord doesn't judge the United States of America, he owes Sodom and Gomorrah an apology. Well, don't be fooled. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. Is that true? It is. It is. I used to get disheartened by elections. Now I just figure every election that passes by, we're getting that much closer to judgment. <laughs> if we're not in it already. Uh, he goes on now. We, the concept here is judgment is coming, whether you believe it or not. Whether you receive it or not, this judgment is coming. Look at verse 4. Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall. The idea is that comfort has grown far more important than any kind of a commitment to Jesus or to the Lord. Any kind of commitment to the Lord God Almighty and their practice of of uh, uh, the old covenant that didn't that more important was my my uh, bed of ivory, which by the way means you have a luxurious bed. The bed of ivory back then is probably the sleep number bed today, <laughs> right? Right. So the idea is, hey, you got a bed, a luxurious you know, expensive bed and you're lying down on it, you stretch yourself out on couches. Now, the idea of stretching out on couches is not taking a nap. There were two things they stretched out on couches for. Sexual immorality was part of the things that were practiced in the worship of other idols. They would lay out on, on couches awaiting uh, the, the different temple prostitutes and or they would stretch themselves out on couches and drink. So the idea is just one big old party. So you're, you're, you got all this luxury, fancy beds. Your life is one big party looking for pleasure on one side or the other. And you have no problem with food. I mean, you got food wherever you, you stretch out your hand. There's a flock. You have lambs. You just take one out of, the, take one of your lambs. Or if you're hungry, you just take one of the calves from a stall. That's just right there. When is the last time you 
as a person growing up in the United States had to worry about what am I going to eat today? There's food everywhere. I always said I, the, the hardest place I think that it would be to starve in is Peru. Have you ever been to Peru? I was in Iquitos, Peru, which is just basically in the middle of the rainforest. And there was, a, I ate a different fruit every day I was there. And I was there 21 days. There was, you could turn around and eat a banana. Turn around and pick up a mango. It was, there was food everywhere. We, we have the idea. This, that's kind of the concept that he's talking about here. Look, you, the food's all right there. What happens today in the United States of America when everybody goes to the store and there's no food there? What are people going to do? It, and then just so you know, if you walk into the store and it's empty, it's too late to go plant something. Right? So you have this, this is the picture. So the Lord is saying to them, look, you guys think you've got it all. But the day's coming when that's all going to go away. When that all ends. All your trust is in your own ability to pile up for your, yourself the wealth that you have. But there was a time when the Germans went to sleep one night and the next day they woke up and the mark was worthless. A wheelbarrow full of German marks could not buy a loaf of bread. Now, I would say, oh, that's not possible for us. But I went to sleep one night. And I, when I lived in California, my house was worth $250,000. And when I woke up, it was worth seventy. And if you were back there in 2009, people were walking away from houses right and left. Because there was no value left in the house. Yeah, it's, it's not that big a stretch. And back then, I was not paying seven bucks a gallon for diesel. So the Lord is saying, look, you have all this ease. Look what he says in verse five. You sing idle songs to the sound of the harp. And like David, you invent for yourselves instruments of music. You, you have first the idea of meaningless worship. Idol songs. They're just song songs. It's, it has nothing involved in it. When, when the Lord calls us to worship, he calls our worship to be truthful and he calls our worship to, have, uh, to, to require the engagement of our mind. The Lord said, Matthew twenty two thirty seven. he said to them, you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. It's not supposed to be so simple and so easy you don't have to think about it. That's not how worship is supposed to be. Worship is supposed to challenge us. Worship is supposed to make us think about the things we're singing about. You know, to take scripture, like the, the last song we sang out of the book of Job, and you hear Job say, though he slay me, yet I will praise him. That's, a, that's an incredible, mindful scripture to sing about, right? What, is that, what does that look like? This is what the Lord wants us. He wants our worship to be full of truth. John 4, 24, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. It's not to be void of love. 
devotionless. It ought to have all of that. Not just an idle song, but a, a true song. And here he says, you're like David. You're just inventing instruments of music, just putting things together. You know, there, this requires luxury. It requires, look, if you got to figure out what you're going to eat tomorrow, you're going to spend your time doing that, not inventing a new form of music. You get what I'm saying? If you're like, okay, if I don't go get water for my family, they're going to not have anything to drink. And it's a, uh, when I was in Africa, it was a seven mile walk one way to the well. So they would walk seven miles carrying empty jugs. The jugs held probably somewhere in a neighborhood of five gallons each. And they would carry two jugs. And they'd go down and they had to fight the baboons off the well sometimes to get to draw the water and then carry the water back. And that would get you through the first half of the day. And then you had to go back seven more miles to get two more, two, 10 more gallons of water. How much time you got to write music and dream about new, you get the, the picture. It's not that it's bad to play music, but it requires a certain level of ease in your life, right? It requires that. And so the, the Lord is saying, look, this is, these are all pictures of that. You have too much time on your hands. Oh, somebody wrote a song about that, didn't they? How many people are singing it right now? Everybody that's my age, huh? <laughs> Verse 6, you drink wine in bowls. Why do they say that? Because you have so much, you, don't, you can't use a cup. You're using a bowl. So they drink wine in bowls. You anoint yourself with the finest oil. You got the best skin care that you could have. And you are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. The picture is, remember when Joseph was sold into slavery and there were, he did have brothers who were grieved at him being in the pit, right? But there was a lot of them that couldn't care less, right? Ah, who cares? And the idea is the same thing you see in Ezekiel 16. You don't care about those who are suffering. You don't care about those whose lives are harder, who are going through struggles. You're, you're shut off to them because for you, life is a big party full of self-interest. One of the things we have to realize is when we get into this state, when we're in this state, what has happened is we no longer are applying the word of God to ourselves. So the prophets were coming to these people, right? But when the prophet would talk, that's always somebody else. It's not me. Oftentimes when people come to the word, they come to the word and they think it's a flashlight. And maybe you'll read a verse and you'll call somebody and you'll say, man, I just read a verse. It's exactly what you need. Right? But the idea, the book of James does not say the word of God is a flashlight. What does it say it is? It says it's a mirror. And when you look into the, the perfect mirror of the word of truth, it'll show you who you are, right? When we read the word of God, and we should all be reading the word of God every day, all of us have a one-year Bible. If you've been coming here since, when did we do it? Last January? We're almost done, huh? Crazy. So, 
So if you've, you've been going through the one-year Bible, when you read your Bible every day, I'm going to tell you there are four questions you should be asking yourself every time you read it. What is God saying to me? Not what is God saying to my neighbor? Not what is God saying to someone else? What is God saying to me? Why? Why is he saying that? What does the Bible say about it? What's the next one, Rick? What am I going to do about it? How am I going to act on what I'm reading? And that should be what we do, not once a week, not once a month, every single day. Spending time in God's word and allowing God by his spirit to speak to us. Right? These guys are not doing that. They've got big bowls of wine. And they got all their skin cream on, and they're not really worried about anybody else's problems. Verse 7, therefore, they shall now be the first of those who go into exile. The northern kingdom is going to beat the southern kingdom into exile by 150 years. 150 years separates Israel from Judah going to exile. So they're the first to go into exile, and the revelry of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. There will be no more revelry. Trust me, when Assyria chains them up, it would have been way better to be in Judah and go to Babylon. In Assyria, they're going to put hooks through your jaw. They're going to strip you naked, put a hook through your jaw, underneath your mouth, coming out your open mouth, to a chain, to the next guy, to the next guy, to the next guy, to the next guy. And that's how you're going into captivity. So it's not good. The party's over. Ultimately is what's being declared in verse 7. The party is over. What would have happened if we had heard the voice of the prophets before that time of judgment? Revelation chapter 3 verse 14 says, Now to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. I would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor nor hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, and you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Now God says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you may be rich. And white garments so that you may be clothed and the shame of your nakedness will not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you might see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. The word goes out, right? So the word going out is a is a challenge to us to have a, 
a, a, a right view. Where am I? Am I good? If I'm good, hallelujah, keep going. And if I'm not, it's not so that I give up. It's so that I do exactly what Jesus says here. My, my gold, my riches are refined in the fire. My robe of righteousness is something Christ provides. It covers my shame. And I want to have eyes so I see correctly. I want to see like my Father in heaven. Amen? Not like we see here. Because our eyes are tainted by sin. Right? We are fallen. And that is a state. So the idea, hey, we want to have eyes that see accurately the things that are going on. He goes on in verse 8, Amos 6. The Lord God has sworn by himself, declares the Lord, the God of hosts. I hate the pride of Jacob. So if you go back to the book of Proverbs, you're going to have a scripture that talks about things God hates, right? Yea, six things the Lord hates, seven are an abomination. You remember what the first one is? Pride. Why is pride a problem? Because pride is the root that causes our blindness, the arrogance, the pride. I'm good. I don't need anything. I don't need a savior. I have all the food I need. I don't need a savior. I have a life of ease. I don't need anything. So the Lord says, I hate the pride of Jacob. Why? Because Jacob, which is a term God would often use for the nation of Israel in disobedience to him, Jacob <coughs> is trusting in his own strongholds. He's trusting in his own horses, his own gold, his own things. And none of those things are going to be able to save him. The Lord says, I abhor the pride of Jacob. I hate his strongholds. I will deliver up the city and everything that is in it. So the northern kingdom is utterly going to fall. And if 10 men remain in one house, they will die. And when one's relative, the one who anoints him for burial, shall take him up to bring the bones out of the house and will say to him, who is in the innermost parts of the house? Is there still anyone with you? He will say no. And he shall say, silence, we must not mention the name of the Lord. For behold, the Lord commands, the great house will be struck down into fragments and the little house into bits. He says, they're going to say, shh, don't say the Lord's name. We don't want him to see us here. We don't want it. The judgment is so intense. And the Lord has no one greater to swear by, right? We've seen this phrase before. The writer of Hebrews talks about it as well. The Lord has sworn by himself. There's no greater name under heaven by which the Lord could swear. Is there? You and I, we swear by a lot of things. I swear by my mama's grave or whatever. The Lord swears by himself for there's none greater. He is Yahweh Sabaoth, the God of hosts, the Lord of the angel armies. And he is not going to show any partiality. The great houses and the low houses, all of it. The judgment is coming upon it all. That's what the day of the Lord means for the unbeliever. It means destruction. 
when you see the picture of the the day of the Lord in the book of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 20 at the great white throne judgment, you remember what happens after? And the Lord shall wipe away every tear from your eye. It is a day of darkness, not of light. The second half of the day, salvation. The first half, judgment. And so this is the judgment that will fall upon the northern kingdom. The Lord goes on in verse 12 and says, so do horses run on rocks? I don't know. I don't ever have a horse. I don't like horses. Horses are big. Horses bite you. I don't like anything that has its own mind. I prefer to ride something that is being controlled by my mind. So I have tried when I first got to Idaho. I took lessons to ride a horse so I could one day be a cowboy. Yeah, that's the only kind of cowboy I'll ever be. So um, I, I have no, not good. I spent a lot more time in the dirt than I did on the horse. So, which once again was because the horse had its own mind. And I kept asking him, what do I twist to make him go and squeeze to make him stop? And they said nothing, which was pretty true. And then I found out if you squeeze your legs, that means go. But that was the only way I could think of to hold on. So when it ran, I squeezed my legs, and it ran faster. So I squeezed my legs some more. I squeezed my legs as hard as I could squeeze my legs until the saddle was under the horse instead of on its back. And then I decided there, there was an eject button. I was going to push the eject button. So when he says, do horses run on rocks, I don't know. But I think it would be slippery to horse's feet to run on rocks. So I, to be honest, don't want to run on a horse anywhere. You guys can have them all. You can have them all. I'll never fight you for a horse. You, I might fight you for a bike, but never for a horse. You can have them. They're all yours. Yeah, turn. If I could, if I knew how to do that. So do horses run on rock? This is a rhetorical question. Demands an answer of no. I'm sure he's talking about the rocky crags like you see um, uh, that, that no, there's no road built on. Uh, does one plow there with an oxen? Do you plow in the rocks? No, we don't do that. But you have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood or bitterness. So rather than being a people filled with justice and righteousness. Instead, your people filled with poison and bitterness. And so, God's judgment is set to come. He says, you who rejoice in Lodibar. Lodibar is a place, uh, it's, it's a place name, but it's also a play on words. Um, the... the the prophet is messing with the, the organization of this word to mean this is a city that they conquered. Okay, so Israel conquered this city and they maybe were boasting, hey, we conquered this city and the Lord is calling that city nothing. 
you've conquered nothing. This is what the Lord is saying. Uh, it's not a thing, literally not a thing. And he goes on, he's going to use another one. Have we not by our own strength captured Karnheim for ourselves? Karnheim means horns. Have we not captured the horns? It's like thinking of uh, a trophy, like you. Didn't we get the trophy of the, the giant elk? Look at the giant trophy that we have. We're so proud of. And so the Lord is saying, um, he's saying, look, you, you have a pair of, of horns. You're boasting in a pair of horns in a city that was not a thing. These are, this is your great boast. And he says, but behold, I will raise up against you a nation, O house of Israel, declares the Lord of hosts. And they shall oppress you from Labo Hamath to the brook of Arabah, from sea to shining sea. You get the idea? From the mountains to the valleys, to, from, from as far as you can imagine, there's no escape. These people are going to come and they will learn that the Lord God in his judgment frequently uses other nations. So the Israel is going to be conquered by Assyria and that will be a picture of God's judgment on Israel. And Judah will be conquered by Babylon. That will be a picture of God's judgment on Judah. In 70 AD, the nation of Israel will be conquered by Rome. And that will be a picture of God's judgment. And the way that the Lord describes these incredible events where you see whole nations cease to be, he describes it like this. And the sun turned to sackcloth and the moon to blood. He uses that exact phrase when Babylon takes Judah. It doesn't necessarily, it doesn't mean that the sun had to turn black and the sun had to turn to blood. What it means is I'm going to end this nation. This nation's going away and they don't exist for another 70 years. Are you with me? So keep those things in mind when we come to Revelation and we see those things, rather than looking for the sun to, to blink out, think about it in terms of the day of the Lord and think about it in terms of judgment. Because the Lord says, look, there's going to be some radical changes that take place on the earth. Some things that were not will be and some things that are won't be anymore. You get the idea. And you can kind of see those pictures as we, as we go through. So the Lord frequently will use other nations to accomplish his, his purpose. Here's what the Lord said in Isaiah. We'll close out with this tonight. Isaiah 46, verse 9. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Who declare the end from the beginning... And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey out of the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken, 
I will bring it to pass. I have purposed. I will do it. When God decrees through the prophet, what he prophesies comes to pass. Amen? Okay, we're going to look next week. We're going to look at the last section of the book of, of Amos. So those will be particular visions that Amos has, not necessarily sermons that he delivered to the people. So we'll start looking at that in chapter 7 next week. Sound good? Why don't you guys stand with me? Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you for this time that we have to come before you, Lord. We thank you for your provision, God. We thank you for the things in your word that you're showing us. And I do pray, God, that as, as much as it is the case that man has a tendency not to learn from the mistakes of those who have gone before him, that we would learn, Lord, that we would recognize the, the fingerprints of judgment and we would be like Daniel's who would lift their eyes to heaven and pray for the people and pray for God's deliverance and pray that the, the, the exile would end and God would deliver. <coughs> Lord, I, we do pray. We pray for a time of revival. We pray for more time to share the gospel. We pray that you would give us the strength we need day in and day out to, to be the men and women you're calling us to be. That we would fulfill the great commission, that we would be men and women who are men and women of the word, men and women of prayer, men and women willing to be used, who are lifting their eyes to heaven and saying, here I am, use me. And Lord, I, I don't know, I don't know where or when, Lord, we lift our eyes up and we know where our help comes from. We know that there will be a day when our Savior will return. But we are called until that time to be busy heralding the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ wherever we go. So, Lord, I pray that you would equip us to accomplish that purpose, Lord, and that when you come, we would be found ready. A people who have prepared the way for her king. So, Lord, we, we just pray your anointing, Lord, on us. That as we go from this place, God, we ask that you would be glorified through it all. And we give you all the praise for it in Jesus' name. Amen.